I'm going to play an arrangement of He Leadeth Me, which was arranged by Roger Bennett. And he wrote this particular arrangement after he had received a diagnosis of cancer. That was not good. Um, And he made a whole book of hymn arrangements entitled Midnight Meditations of the hymns that were extra special to him during that time. As I was looking for um, the lyrics, the stanzas for He Leadeth Me This Week, I found the story behind how it was written, and I thought you would enjoy to hear it too. On a Wednesday evening, Joseph Gilmore was preaching at a midweek prayer service on the topic of Psalms 23. He later wrote, I set out to give the people an exposition of the 23rd Psalms, but I got no further than the words, He leadeth me. Those words took hold of me as they had never done before. I saw in them a significance and beauty of which I had never dreamed. At the close of the meeting, a few of us kept on talking about the thoughts which I had emphasized, and then and there, on the back page of my sermon notes, I penciled the hymn, just as it stands today. I handed it to my wife and thought no more of it. She sent it, without my knowledge, to the Watchman and Reflector magazine, and there it first appeared in print on December 4, 1862. This style of devotional practice, in which one spends a significant amount of time reflecting and meditating on a single verse or on a short passage, is very common. It is amazing what the Holy Spirit can say to us when we take time to listen and ponder, but also, like Gilmore, what we hear when we least expect it, such as when we read through a very familiar passage as he did with Psalms 23.
Thank you, Bobby. He leadeth me, O blessed thought. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Philippians uh, verses 3, 8 through 10. Or chapter 3, sorry, verses 8 through 10. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. But indeed... I also count all things lost, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him. And, that the pow- and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Good morning, church. Isn't it nice? Just look around and see how many folk we have here today. It's wonderful, and yet when I got here this morning, there might have been five of us them thinking, geez, maybe I shouldn't bother today. (laughs) I'm really delighted. I'm happy to see you. Happy Sabbath. I want to thank my helpers today, um, Gage, Miss Bobby, Rick, and the ladies who did a wonderful song service for us this morning. I am very grateful. And I want to welcome us all today. Um, And guess what? Um, I think I'm going to have you here for a little bit later today. And I don't think you can complain because Thanksgiving is done. Black Friday is done. So where would you go if I were to keep, if I were to let you out right on time? There's nowhere to go. You should be in church. I'm sorry. I, I, um, I tried to shorten this, but I just couldn't handle it. So um, I think I'm going to go over a little bit, maybe 10 minutes or so. I don't think that would hurt. 
Okay. The new preacher at his first service had a pitcher of water and a glass on the pulpit. As he preached, he drank until the pitcher of water was completely gone. After the service, someone asked an old woman of the church, how did you like the new pastor? Fine, she said, but he's the first windmill I ever saw that was run by water. You know, our deacons just picked up our offering, and sometimes I would like to think that I would like to hope that maybe one day I can say some of these things that these three little boys said. I don't think I'm wise enough to come up with any of this. Three boys were talking about how much money their fathers made. The lawyer's son said, my father goes into court on a case and often comes home with as much as $1,500 a day. The doctor's son said, my father performs an operation and sometimes earns as much as $2,000 for it. The minister's son, determined not to be outdone, said, that's nothing. My father preaches for 20 minutes on Sunday morning, and it takes six men to carry the money. So our deacons, we only have four deacons. But this little guy's church had six deacons, and so he outdid the lawyer and the doctor. So let us be thankful that we can praise the Lord for all the things that he is, uh, is doing for us. Um, bow your heads with me, please. Thank you, Lord, for guiding our thoughts and actions so as to bring you glory. Strengthen us and fill us with your peace. May we love and serve each other as Jesus has shown us. Amen. You know, I'm just going to bring to you this allegory here this morning because it's something that we find happens in our church, our church, our churches all the time. I know I grew up in a church where my father and my, one of my brothers were pastors, and I can tell you the things we had to put up with, not just as ministers, kids, but as, you know, anybody in church. And it um, lets me know that even though you're in church, even though we call ourselves Christians, that doesn't remove us from the fact that sometimes we bicker and fight. And I'm hoping that I can help us a little bit with understanding why we do this and maybe why we shouldn't. So some tools lived together in a carpenter's shop. They were having some problems getting along and some complained that others were not doing their share of work. They met to discuss their issues. The hammer spoke first, for he served as the chairman. Brother Drill, he began, you and your family are so noisy, and you seem to spin in circles, but go nowhere. The drill quickly spoke up. It's true that I go around in circles, and my work makes noise, but at least I'm sharp. Pencil is small and often so dull. 
that he makes a bad impression. He needs to be sharpened a bit if he expects to be of any use around here. Pencil felt defensive and spoke up. Yes, he began, I am a little blunt at times, but it's because I work hard at my job. At least I'm not rough like sandpaper here. It seems all he does is rub things the wrong way. That remark made Sandpaper really angry. Hey, what about Ruler here? He measures others by his standards, as though he is the only one right around here. Ruler surveyed the group and said, I'll go if I have to, but then so must a screwdriver. He's so annoying, always tightening here and loosening there. Screwdriver angrily spat out, fine with me. I'll go, but plane must go too. His work is superficial. There's no depth at all to it, he said. To this, plane leveled his terse reply. Saw's cuts hurt. She divides instead of unifies. Saw rose up to answer these accusations when suddenly a noise at the door stopped all conversation. The carpenter walked in, ready to begin the day's work. He put on his tool belt and stopped and stepped, sorry, to the workbench. He picked up the pencil and ruler. Carefully, he measured and marked the wood before him. He sawed along the marks and then planed the cut edges of the wood to smooth the rough edges. He hammered joints into place and drilled holes for screws to make the piece sturdy. Then he sandpapered the wood to a silky smoothness. All day long he worked, using first one tool and then another. At the end of the day, He gave a hearty blow and blew the dust from the finished product. And then he said, beautiful. I couldn't have done it without my tools. Each one had an important role to play. No one tool could have done all the jobs. They've all important. We are all important. When we work together, going praying, and giving. We are the master's tools to finish his work. You know, one second, one minute, one firing of the missile in the midst of the war. The missile cannot come back. The weapon is now headed for you. And the one who fired it is on your side. It is war. You are hit by friendly fire. But this is not Baghdad or the Battle of the Bulge. I am speaking of the many walking wounded in the body of Christ who have been hurt by other believers, people who have been hit by the betrayal of a Christian. But this is no mistake. She meant to say those words. He meant to plot against you. They meant to bring you down. And you will never be the same. 
You will suffer with this for the rest of your life. You will not go back to any church. You will lick your wounds. You will be possessed for the rest of your life by the pain. And the pain becomes bitterness. Do you know anyone like that? Or is that your story? Are you the victim of a wound inflicted by someone you love? A victim? It does not have to be. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Friendly fire is not something that happens in a particular church or area. It is universal. Not only in the lives of Christians, but non-Christians as well. It is the matter of being hurt by one you love. It is the matter of seeing yourself as a victim or not in that process. A pastor had three appointments to meet with three different families. The first began to tell him their story, but soon the words ended in tears. Then they said it. We have been hurt by other Christians. Then came the second family. They began telling their story that got more complicated as they went. We slowed them down and tried to help them identify the heartache. They had been betrayed by another believer. He was amazed. Two appointments, two identical issues, but his amazement would not be complete. The third person came in. The pastor was almost ready to say, All right, so how were you hurt by another believer? But he told him his concern was about a vocational decision. The pastor thought, okay, great, this is not a trend. They spoke for a while, seeking God's will on what to do with his life. Finally, hoping, holding back tears, he interrupted the flow of talk with the real hurt. I am in this fix because another Christian hurt me. 
Has anyone here ever been hurt by someone you love or respect? Has any believer here ever been disillusioned about the church because you were let down by a member in the church? I call this friendly fire. It is the flack that we take from our own side. It is the misguided bomb intended for the enemy that lands right smack dab in the middle of our hearts. It is the misguided bomb intended for the enemy that lands right smack dab in the middle of our hearts. The friendly fire pain was known by David. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The friendly fire pain was known by our Lord. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. John 13, 18. Today, the question is not, how do we stop it? The question is, what do we do with it? The question may also be put, will I remain a victim or will I move to being a victor with Christ? A salesman once sold insurance door-to-door in poor areas of Louisiana. One of his clients was a poor family who lived in an old house. Every month, he would go to collect the insurance money, and they would sit in their living room and talk. One day, he noticed that the clock was wrong. It said 9 o'clock, when in fact, it was noon. He said nothing, but he saw the same thing the next month and then the next month. Finally, he said something to the husband and wife. Tears came to their eyes. That was the moment our boy died 10 years ago. The clock had stopped in their lives. The pain of friendly fire can stop the clock. This happens to Christians who get hurt by other Christians and who fail to identify their pain with Christ. The clock stops. They go through life month after month, year after year, and often church after church. But the clock stopped in their lives way back when they were hurt. Today, it is popular to be a victim But being a victim is not a good way to live because life cannot go forward. For believers hurt by other believers, for loved ones hurt by other loved ones, for anyone feeling like a victim of another person, or maybe just feeling betrayed by life, in order for you to move from victim to victor in dealing with the pain of betrayal or suffering of any kind, Three drastic steps must be taken. We see these three drastic steps being taken by Paul, who is in prison as a result of the plotting of his own people, who was mistreated by his own brothers. This is your first step when hurt by another. Take up your cross, and I shall take up my cross. 
This is hard language. Paul cannot go again to the cross to atone for his sins. That is not what he means. He means to say that every sorrow, every act of treachery, every act of betrayal has become for him a point of identification with Christ. Through these things, he knows resurrection in his life. Paul is given a cross. His cross is imprisonment. The imprisonment is because of betrayal and treachery of people who should have loved him and encouraged him. It is the betrayal and treachery of fellow preachers of the gospel. It is the betrayal and treachery and plotting of the Jews. In so many ways, we see this man betrayed. And he is now in prison. But Paul will say, I want you to know, when the clock has stopped at the point of our last betrayal, yet I wonder how many here today are living their lives with the clock stopped? There is another answer. There is a way to healing, but I warn you, it will involve another kind of pain, the pain of Christ's cross. But Christ's cross will bring resurrection, and the new life he brings will also make the clock start ticking again. This is what we see in Joseph. He was able to forgive his brothers after they literally ditched him. Joseph identified his pain with God. In the pain, in God, the pain was intended to bring blessing. Being hurt by his brothers made sense. The pain of false accusation made sense. The pain of the trial of unjust imprisonment was good. The years of separation from his father were good for him. He was saying with David, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. The power at work in the life of Joseph is what we need in order to get past this hurt. It is the power that was present in Paul when he said in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How do you move from being hurt to rejoicing? The answer is, again, take up your cross. It's not an easy answer, but it's the necessary one. The person who is hurt and not moving on to embrace that pain as a means for God to do something in his life is the person who is stuck and the clock has stopped. The reason is that he is not denying himself. In fact, the very thing he wants to do is feed self. My rights, they hurt me, they should do this. They said this about me. I need to be justified. I need to be taken care of. I was offended. But Jesus says, take up your cross. Follow me. Deny yourself. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. 
Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We want to think about cross-bearing as physical pain, and it is. We want to think about taking up our cross as standing up for truth and maybe taking some hits for it, maybe even being a martyr for it. In dealing with the experience of being hurt by others, to take up the cross is to stop being a victim and begin to be a victor through Jesus Christ. Stop pretending you are sovereign and confess the truth that only God is sovereign. That is the final act of submission, to say that I am not in control, but God is. In confessing this, you would find healing. You know, Gethsemane is the place where, like Jesus, like Paul, like Joseph, you come face to face with your crucifixion and with the fact that God is in control. Note carefully, if there is no resurrection in new life to emerge from pain, the betrayal, the hurtful words, there must be a crucifixion. And if there is to be a crucifixion by the Father for the good of many, then there must be a Gethsemane moment when you say, not my will, Lord, but yours. There must be a moment when you say, even when the shadow of pain is all falling over me, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You know, love ordains every struggle to strengthen us, lights every furnace to purify us, mingles every bitter cup to heal us. We will never know God's love more than when we take up the cross, take off the crown, and go to our own Gethsemane. God will do it for us. God will do it for you. He'll do it for me. He will transform you. He will transform you who have been hurt, wounded, abandoned, sinned against, betrayed, from a victim to a victor by trusting in the one who was hurt, wounded, abandoned, sinned against, betrayed, but who pronounced forgiveness from the cross. Jesus Christ has transformed the cross from an instrument of destruction to an instrument of salvation ordained by God. In him, there can be no more victims, only victors. How many here will say, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, but being by any means possible, I may rise again? How many will believe that they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good? You know, I think it is so important. Like I said, I was brought up in the church. And I am aware of a lot of struggles that, you know, our Adventist churches go through. I have lived in a lot of places, in the Caribbean, in Europe, in Canada, here, and many more places. So I am aware of the struggles that our churches go through. And I have always been an Adventist Christian. 
And I wonder sometimes how, as Adventist Christians, we get to the point of not being nice, nice, not being kind to others. I think sometimes our churches will be filled to overflowing if we only were able to do and live the way God wants us to. You know, Bo walked into the middle school cafeteria, sat down, and unzipped his lunch bag. No one else sat at the table. He was going to eat alone again. Bo was autistic, which meant he was awkward in talking with other kids. Occasionally, he would flap his hands like little wings. He was just strange enough that no one came to sit with him and make friends until today. A college guy in a football jersey slid in across from Bo. Can I sit here? He asked politely, setting down his plate with two slices of pizza. Sure, why not, replied Bo. They began talking, and Bo discovered that he was with Travis Rudolph, who was then the wide receiver of the Florida State Seminoles football team. Bo was amazed. He loved the Florida State team. He was having a great lunch. Off to the side, an adult took a photo and sent it to Bo's mom. Who is that eating with my son, she asked. Just a football star was the idea behind the reply. It made the mom so happy that she teared up. Her son didn't have to eat alone on this day. Mom shared the photo on Facebook, and soon the story of the kind football player showed up on sports sites everywhere. Without meaning to, Travis Rudolph got press attention from all over the world. I just wanted to say hi to the kid because I saw him eaten alone, he told BBC.com. I didn't even know anyone took a photo of it. It sounds like Travis made a touchdown without even knowing he had the ball. You know, sometimes I wonder, and I may have said this already, you know, can we always be kind, or is that a difficult thing to do? Can we always, you know, help where we don't know that we're even helping? Can we always be the hands, the feet, the voice of Jesus? To me, it doesn't take a lot. I know in my life I have come across a lot of difficulties, but I have never hung on to them. I'm hurting myself if I do. So if someone says something that you don't like, don't hold on to it. You know, just pass it by, smile, be nice, don't even remember it. And that's how I try to live my life. Because I think that's the way as Christians we should. And in the meantime, try not to say anything that hurts anyone else or do anything that is harmful to anyone else. If thou faint in the day of adversity... 
Thy strength is small. And that is taken from Proverbs chapter 24, verse 18. And it's titled, Better or Better. Do you permit adversity to make you bitter or better? No matter how filled with sunshine a pathway may be, dark clouds of disappointment or adversity are bound to appear sometime. How do you react? Do such experiences make you bitter or better? Talk about adversity, disappointment, discouragement, Joseph knew all about such experiences. For years, such was the way of life for him. But through the dark clouds, he always saw the sun shining. Adversity did not discourage nor destroy him. It did not make him better. It made him better. At times, Joseph might well have reasoned God had both forsaken and forgotten him. Every mile of the journey down to the servitude into Egypt, after he had been betrayed by his brothers, the young man must have wondered why. Why, Lord? Why did this have to happen to me? The experience of the years that followed could easily have made Joseph bitter. He could have been bitter toward his brothers for mistreating him, bitter toward Potiphar's wife for framing him, or even bitter toward God, who apparently had forsaken him. Joseph could well have become bitter toward life for dealing him such cruel blows. No doubt there were times of discouragement when the young man's mind was assailed with dark thoughts. But if there were, such are not recorded. Joseph's mind provided no permanent resting place for them. Can we do that? The man of God refused to permit adversity to make him a soured, disappointed person. He always looked for the blessings in his adversity. How does disappointment and adversity affect you? Does your relationship with the Lord and your familiarity with the promises of his word hold you firm and keep you sweet? Do such experiences make you bitter? Or, like Joseph, do they make you better? If thou faints in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. I want to thank you for being here. Our closing song, Sister Rosie, is number 526.